Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Ian Williams, who is a speaker, business advisor, author, personal transformation expert, and the founder of Still Point Insight. Ian, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Of course, man. Thanks for coming on the show. And we like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you just mentioned a few. Um, author, I just released a book on February 21st of this year, 2023. Uh, so that's been an exciting journey. It's been an exciting month. Uh, been a long time in the coming, in the making. And uh, what I do professionally for work is I'm a consultant with organizations focusing on process optimization, organizational development, and employee well-being and engagement. So we could talk a little bit more about that later on if you want to. In terms of what I do for fun, you know, I usually keep it pretty simple. Um, I have a, I consider my core well-being practices part of my fun. Uh, love getting out in nature anytime I can, you know, so whether that's a walk around the city or a camping trip or I'm here in Minnesota, so sometimes it's up to the boundary waters. Um, really love being out in nature. Yeah, I love it. So out in nature and is that the core well-being practice? Are there a couple others that you kind of sprinkle in there? There's definitely some other ones I sprinkle in. Um, that's the core Journaling is one that I keep uh, I keep close, right? Spend a lot of time at my desk. Um, a lot of my work is virtual, but uh, that's been a long time practice for me, a decade plus at this point. And you know, physical fitness, um, physical well being is important to me, right? So whether that's aerobic or anaerobic, um, I enjoy going for runs. I enjoy you know lifting and putting back down heavy things or as heavy as they can be for me. Um, and you know, the other essential kind of suite of well-being practices for me are the energy arts, yoga, Qigong, Tai Chi, meditation, martial arts. Um, these are things that have become integral to my well-being and, and, uh, and I enjoy them. There we go. That's probably it right there. I mean, that's the, those are definitely the high points, journaling, energy arts, exercise, nature. That's a, that's a full life for me. I love it. I love it. Well, tell us a bit more about, let's start with the book. Tell us a bit more about the book. Absolutely. Book is entitled Soil and Spirit, Seeds of Purpose, Nature's Insight, and the Deep Work of Transformational Change. So I'm a big picture thinker, always have been. And one of the things that I'm really motivated by is the grand challenges that we find ourselves amidst at this time, you know, in in terms of humanity and civilization, really. Um, Things like climate change, things like social justice. These are things that get me out of bed in the morning. These are things that keep me up at night. And the book was my attempt, my offering, an act of service to um, contribute to providing a solution to that uh, grand challenge. And I say a single solution because I think it's, it's a pretty grand gesture to try and solve all of those challenges in one fell swoop. But from my theory of change perspective, 
the way to do that, the single and simplest solution is through revival of self. Right? I think if we all take that time to do the inner work, to find alignment with ourselves personally, socially, spiritually, as well as with the physical environment around us, that's really the most effective way that we can be an effective agent of change in the world. So soil and spirit as a title is really metaphorical in the sense that there is a soil, there's a foundation, there's a substrate to a spiritual process. And that process of self-revival for me is a spiritual process. That being said, I'm also using nature as an analogy, touch point, and teacher throughout the book. So it's really actually meant for people who listen to your podcast, those people that are in transition themselves and who are trying to find a way to connect with deeper meaning and purpose in their life. Um, and it's not an instructional one, two, three steps to a better life, new you. It is an exploration of what it means to find purpose in life and how to actualize that purpose in the outer world. I gotcha. Yeah, that's so interesting that you talk about the way to solve a lot of the world's problems in one fell swoop is getting individuals to connect back to themselves. Um, when did you first align yourself with that line of thought or reasoning? Honestly, it was experientially. Um, in terms of when, probably goes back to the early teens, 2011 to 2014, 15 era. Um, at that point in my life, I had been using substances for about a decade and I was using them to mask underlying depression and anxiety. So I was basically self-medicating. What's that? Did you say early teens? Early teens in terms of like 20, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. I was like, you've been using it since you were four? <laughs> I was confused there. I'll yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, as I really got serious about my own well-being, I realized I got to figure out what's going on inside of me if I stand any chance of making this a long-term sustainable path, yeah. you know, of not using substances. I need to find more effective ways to deal with my emotions. I need to find more effective ways to deal with my mental health to address these things, right? Because I know why I'm using, but I don't necessarily know how to effectively address them. And at that point, I didn't necessarily know where to start, but I just knew that I needed to start and I dove in. Um, you know, I mentioned journaling earlier. That was one of my first really core well-being practices. And I still use it to this day as a means of just getting things out of my head, out of my heart, on out of my body and onto paper. And once I do that, I feel like they, be, they become a little bit more tangible. It's also a process that allows me to writing the, the process of writing is a process that allows me to slow down my thoughts to the point where they're a little bit more um, digestible, you know, it's a slower stream of consciousness. And so it's easier to follow. So as I started to dive into all of that stuff, uh, individually, internally, I started to realize that the world around me and my experiences of that world were, they were changing in a good way, in a positive way. And so I just continued to tease the thread, you know, I just continued to follow that breadcrumb trail and, and really commit wholeheartedly to that self-discovery process. And it led me to a, a lot of beautiful experiences in life, led me to a lot of beautiful people, um, a lot of beautiful discoveries about myself. And I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time, but now looking back, you know, about a decade later, that process of self-discovery was really the thing that 
planted the initial seed for the book. You know, that's really what the book is about. Self-discovery, self-actualization, self-revival, and the opportunity to engage in that process. And now to be in a position where certainly it's an ongoing process, but I'm in a place where I can, you know, actually enjoy some of the fruits of that labor over the last decade and a half. Um, it's been a beautiful process. So I would say that's probably when it began for me. There we go. So it was really that experience you got to know yourself. It solved a lot of problems for you in your life. And you're like, I'm assuming if other people went through this process, a lot of their individual problems would be solved. And then that would kind of solve a lot of our problems that we have as a unit. Collectively. Yeah. And I, you know, perhaps I could have chose a better word rather than solve that problem. I think it's a, I you think know, I chose that word actually. I, well, put that in your we, mouth. <laughs> maybe we both did. Um, we both, it, we, we, we tend to, I think, I think it's just part of human nature. We tend to be outcome oriented, right? I want to do this process to get the carrot at the end. Yep. And through my own self-discovery journey, I've realized that that's rarely the way it works, right? This is an ongoing process. And as soon as I started to kind of integrate that mindset into my day-to-day, um, it was a fundamental shift from I'm doing this in order to X, Y, Z to I'm doing this in order to do it, Yeah. right? And there's a mindset shift in there that allows one to orient towards the process as opposed to the outcome. And I think some fundamental components of an effective process of self-discovery, you know, are things like courage, curiosity, um, certainly commitment you would toss in there because it wasn't all uh, rainbows and butterflies by any sense of the imagination, right? It was really diving into those core pieces of self that were causing me pain and suffering. And so dealing with those things was not necessarily fun. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily use the word, you know, like I've solved those problems, but I've learned a lot about them. And that awareness or that learning process has led to self-awareness and that increased self-awareness has taught me a lot about, you know, what I'm passionate about. It's taught me a lot about my skill set and how to effectively use that skill set when I'm teaching or working with clients. And so I think it's, it's really like the underbelly of that process, right? The courage, the curiosity, staying committed to it along the way where we learn a lot about ourselves and that process of learning about ourselves, I think is really what's going to become the components of change that we're going to experience and deliver to the quote unquote outer world. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, tell us a little bit more about your motivation. What really gets you up and keeps you going? you said you wanted to talk about, uh, or you wrote the book, I think somewhere on the subtitles, like taking humanity into the 22nd century, or is that correct? Yeah, it's one of the taglines for the book, preparing humanity for the 22nd century. The reason um, that that's a tagline is because one of the things that really motivates motivates me is climate change. Uh, you know, I think it's a pretty, with the caveat here, that this is probably one of my most extreme opinions about it. The sixth mass extinction is kind of knocking on our door, you know, um, and we have an opportunity, not just an opportunity. We have a responsibility to answer that calling. And so 
when I really zoom out, you know, into the 30, 40, 100,000 foot view, that's the thing that, again, it gets me out of bed in the morning, but it also keeps me up at night. Um, the reality is if we can't figure that out, we're going to have a lot more challenges coming down the pipeline in the next century. Um, and the science tells us we've got, you know, we're in this pivotal decade, basically. And so that's a huge motivator for me. Um, with that being said, you can't really talk about climate change and climate justice without talking about social justice. They're two wings of the same bird, you know, climate change at this point is impacting millions and billions of people across the planet. And, you know, if, of course, we're speaking in generalities here, but if we're privileged enough to be having, you know, this conversation, if we're privileged enough to be listening to this conversation via podcast, chances are likely that we might not be in that demographic that is already experiencing these cataclysmic changes, right? So I think we need to keep it in context in terms of this is something that is already impacting humanity. This is already impacting us globally. Um, for some of us, we're just a little bit more insulated than others, right? And I spend a lot of time thinking about this problem. Um, maybe I could define it differently than problem, but I think a lot of, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. And it always brings me back to that notion of in order to effectively address this, we need more individuals who are agents of change, right? Who are actively participating in a process to try and build solutions, build bridges, connect with other people, and to recognize that we have a lot of work to do as a civilization, as a species, and we have a responsibility to do that work because our decisions or lack thereof, our actions or lack thereof are impacting the rest of the planet, right? Countless other species, uh, biomes, environments, etc. And so, you know, this notion of soil and spirit, nature's insight, and the deep work of transformational change. One of the central themes or ethos of the book is we need to find a way, again, collectively, because there are already communities that are out there doing it um, and have been doing it for a long time, find a way to live within the bounds of natural law, right? This notion that we can essentially control the environment, we can control the physical landscape. Um, with that comes a hubris that is creating a lot of challenges for us, right? We're creating a lot of our own, we're manifesting a lot of our own challenges as a species and a civilization. And so the opportunity to recognize that and to take a step back, to find some stillness within, to find some inner alignment and the opportunity to say, what would it look like to do things differently? You know, not just more sustainably, because sustaining the path that we're on is basically just slowing down the inevitable, right? But really find a way to live more regeneratively, coexistence with one another and the natural world. And I think that process is a process of transformational change. And in order for it to happen collectively, it has to happen individually. Mm. I got you. So it's because I hear sustainability a lot, but it's less on that front and more on the learning to live in harmony with nature in a way that like 
kind of leads to its regeneration instead of like, you know, we're slowly destroying it. What, um, you got to educate me on climate change because to be frank, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and so um, what are like the major debates, like top three or five, like major pain points for climate change? And then like, what is there to actually be done? So, you know, we have like a lot of people on the planet and we think about living in harmony with nature in that sort of way. The first thing that pops in my head is like Stone Age is basically. And so what um what would that look like in a modern world as well? Mm -hmm. I know that's a big question. question. <laughs> yeah, that's well, a huge I think, question. I, I think it's a um it brings us to a really rich space. So I'll try and answer in some sort of, you know, cohesive manner that's uh cogent along the way. But from a from a major talking point. Uh, from a major talking point standpoint, I look at it on a continuum, right? You've got people who are climate activists on one end of the continuum. This is their day-to-day -day work, right? And you have people on the other end of the continuum who say either climate change isn't real or I don't care about it. Um, and you've got people everywhere in between. And so the perspectives on climate change are just as diverse as the people, number of people on the planet. In terms of, you know, the science around it, um, the International Panel on Climate Change, which is the UN's um, governing body or panel focused on climate change specifically, has been putting out a few reports over the last several years, which are analyzing and kind of aggregating uh, some of the most up-to-date science around climate. And we've, like I said earlier, we've got about a decade to curb global emissions. And when I say emissions, I'm not just talking about carbon. I'm talking about greenhouse gases in general. Uh, but the big one is carbon, right? That's the one we, we often hear about. And the reason that curbing greenhouse gases is important is because as those greenhouse gases build up in the atmosphere, atmosphere they create to global warming. And as global warming happens, it's creating the instability and increased intensity of climate change, right? So for me, I live here in Minnesota um, and we're used to our, our winters, right? We spend half the year basically in winter and we need to be, I think we also need to, we need to recognize that there's a difference between weather and climate right? Weather is more day-to-day, month-to-month. Climate, we're talking about over longer periods of time, but that climate is changing, at least for me here in Minnesota, right? In the decades that I've been um, on this planet. Winter looks a lot different here in Minnesota than it did when I was a kid. So high-level contextual understanding, right? We've got these greenhouse gases that are contributing to global warming, and then we have different perspectives around how important or relevant that is and what extent we should go in order to address it. Okay. In terms of what are the things that are contributing to it? Um, there's a fantastic book out there, which was released, I believe 2021 called speed and scale by John Doerr. Um, and he basically goes through a, a punch list, right. Of how to get to 
global net zero emissions by 2050. And this is a monumental task, just to put it in perspective. Uh, and those lever points are, <clears throat> a few of them are cleaning up industry, right? So things like steel, concrete, um, the grid, right? And, and we'll talk about that, that in a moment, right? But a lot of our grid here in the United States is still powered by burning coal. We're hearing a lot about the renewable energies of wind and, and sun, and those are great and they're scaling, but we're still burning energy. We're still burning fossil fuels in order to create energy. That's putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So one of them is cleaning up industry, and that's a multidimensional conversation. One of them is um, making our grid carbon neutral. So that's a huge one, and it can happen in a number of different ways. One of them is electrifying transportation, right? So as we drive around in our vehicles, which are using gasoline, which obviously comes from oil, those internal combustion engines are burning those things, creating fumes, that's creating greenhouse gases. If we can electrify transportation, that makes transportation um, net zero from the standpoint of driving the vehicle, right? We're still not necessarily having a conversation about the imputed costs of the steel uh, that's required to make the vehicles, the <clears throat> precious metals and other things that are required to make the batteries, but electrifying transportation is key. Agriculture and industry, right? So here in the United States, heavily dependent on corn, soy, wheat. These are commodity crops, which means they're grown in mass in monocultures. In order to sustain those monocultures, which is not something that is natural, you don't find monocultures in nature, you've got farmers uh, driving tractors back and forth across the field. You've got farmers putting down chemicals on the soil in order to, you know, nutrients in order to support the crops. So there's all of these imputed costs, right? If you're buying produce and it comes from California, it's been transported several thousand miles, depending on where you live. Um, so all of these things, it's a, it's a multidimensional conversation. It's super deep and there's um, nothing about it that isn't interconnected. It is one challenge. So it's really hard to break it down and have a, a monolithic conversation about it because it's all interconnected and interrelated, right? But those few things that we just ran through are key. We also need to uh, protect nature, right? We need to actually conserve the wild parts of the earth that we still have left. Uh, biodiversity is key. If you, if you think about natural law, diversity is actually what creates resiliency in nature, right? Again, monocultures, it's just like the lawn, right? Like that's not, you don't find lawns of monocultures of a single type of grass out in the natural world. Well, the earth doesn't sustain that, right? So diversity actually creates resilience. So I'm hoping that we're, you know, talking, we're kind of coming down into this meso level, right? This middle tier of what can actually be done about it, because that's the question that you asked, or one of the questions that you asked in that little bouquet of questions. So we've got this high level um, overarching narrative of what is climate change, what's causing it. We drop down a level into what can we actually do about it and what's contributing to it. Fortunately, those things are often similar answers. And then we drop down into the, you know, the micro level of the individual, the communities. You could even say nations, right? States or nations. Individuals, we exist within this system. And we might not all be responsible for 
the decisions that were made by our, you know, forefathers and mothers, but we live in the system as it exists now. And that system has to fundamentally be altered. It has to be quite frankly, transformed in order to find a more quote unquote, sustainable way of living, right? By the standard definition of sustainable. And I usually don't use that word, but for the sake of this conversation, we can go with it. It starts with awareness, right? For someone like you to ask the question, educate me, I need to learn about it. And that's key because we all have learning to do. And then once we have some general understanding of this giant behemoth of a topic, then it becomes a question of the self-awareness. Where do I fit into this solution? How am I contributing to these challenges? And learning about those things gives us insight as to what are the things that I can do in my life on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year basis to become part of the solution, right? So it's not only multidimensional, you know, I like to say it's top-down, bottom-up, but it's also in-to-out and left-to-right and right-to-left, right? I mean, we have this 360-degree um, view of how we relate to it, how it relates to us, how the natural world impacts our daily lives and et cetera, how we impact the natural world with our decision-making on a daily basis. So it's a massive challenge. And I'm not suggesting that everybody has to get up and go be part of the climate fight, right? Um, That's not necessarily what I'm suggesting, but to bring some perhaps optimism and positivity to the conversation, We're sitting, this challenge effectively sits at the intersection of public and private, right? We have private industry that is, um, of course, connected to policy, but also slightly adjacent to it. So we have this intersection, right, of public and uh, and private. And then we also have people like you and me, purchasers and consumers, who are also somewhere in that mix. And in order to effectively solve this problem, we need to meet at that intersection. We need to create solutions within that intersection. In order to do that, we need individuals who are willing to cross the bridge, right? To extend the hand across the aisle, shake hands and say, look, let's have a conversation about how we can, it might require compromise, but more importantly, how can we negotiate? And equally importantly, how can we innovate, right? So you said one thing, which was when I think about living with the natural world, I think about going back to the stone age. And I think that's a pretty common um, perspective, right? Because it's like, well, do, do I have to do away with my cell phone? Do I have to do away with my technology? Do I have to do away with my vehicle? I think in the short term, there's gonna be some difficult answers, right? And I think some of those answers are gonna be yes, we do have to if we really want to sustain human life and many other forms of life on this planet in the short term. In the long term, and this is part of what the book is about, is not necessarily that we have to do away with all of human progress. That's not at all what I'm proposing. Rather, we need to find a way to let our innovation as a species become a bit more connected or more completely connected to the natural world and natural law. And I think the way to do that, again, is through the individual, us learning about ourselves and figuring out, okay, I might not be the person who's going to change careers and move into, you know, green energy, 
but I can be the person who takes time to do away with my lawn in the front yard and, and move from a monoculture to a polyculture, right. And have multi uh, multi-dimensional species in my lawn because that's going to support the pollinators, the pollinators support the food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's all interconnected. There's this trickle-down effect. So it's a huge topic and it's really hard to digest. And for me, one of the things that I've experienced over the years is when I try and take it all in, in one gulp, it becomes debilitating, right? It's like, well, it's so big and what can I do? I'm just one person. And that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, not just about climate change, but about any grand challenge like this. The one thing that we can do as individuals is we can go within ourselves. And again, we can find that stillness and that alignment and engage in that self-discovery process in order to figure out how do I want to show up? What skills do I want to cultivate? And how can I use those skills and that self-awareness in order to be a part of the solution? So hopefully, again, that was somewhat cogent and coherent as we kind of went through some of those different levels in a crash course. Certainly it's a, you know, I should again, put the caveat in there that that was a um, drastic oversimplification, but for those that maybe, you know, are starting from square one, hopefully it was a helpful orientation uh, class. It was, it was really helpful. <clears throat> I mean, like I've heard conversations about it, but I n- never liked details and something I've always been skeptical of, you talked about the difference between climate and weather, which is such a good distinction, <laughs> such a good distinction. Um, but I also wanted to ask about, there have been times in the Earth's history where the climate changed and humans weren't like, you know, pumping out all this, the greenhouse gases that were destroying the atmosphere, causing global warming. And so that is definitely my like first objection and I feel like a really common one. And so like, what is, what caused like the ice ages when the climate really changed and how is that different from what's happening right now? Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is I am not, um, a expert by any means on long-term history of the planet. Okay. And the, um, climactic changes that have happened over thousands and thousands of years. <clears throat> Certainly I have this conversation a lot though. My response to it is, sir, yes, the earth has gone through its own changes, right? There's no question about that. Um, I don't think anyone's debating that. However, To our awareness, to my awareness, there has never been a time in history where a species on the planet has been causing those climactic changes. Mm. They've happened for some other reason, right? Yeah. So if you go back to the last ice age, uh, I don't know what the population was of the Homo sapien at that time, right? But Effectively, we were hunters and gatherers, most likely, many of us. Probably not burning, you know, fossil fuels and consuming, quote unquote, natural resources, which is another phrase that I'm not super fond of, right? Because it fundamentally defines the earth as a reservoir to deplete, right? The earth has these resources for our taking. Um, That's a mindset shift. That's a different conversation. 
but that's my short answer to to your point yeah absolutely the earth has gone through changes right but have those changes been caused by a species living on the planet um and i think to the extent that that my knowledge and awareness goes the answer to that question is no so it's not necessarily to suggest that I think, it, again, it brings us back to this kind of multidimensional, interrelated nature of this conversation. It's not sophisticated enough to look at it as a black or white. Is it happening or is it not? Can we do anything or not? And I would say that that's the case with virtually anything in life, right? I mean, even if you're thinking about your what you're going to have for lunch today, you know, you have more options than you think you do. It's simply a matter of taking time to move through that process in a more methodical way. And so <clears throat> I'm not sure if that, uh, you know, scratches your itch in terms of the whole climate change and that point of contention that you brought up, but it's usually the answer that I give. And the reason that it's often the answer that I give is because I personally, through my own self-discovery process, have learned over the years that I stay the most constructive and conducive to being an effective agent of change when I'm focused on solution building rather than um, questioning with a overly skeptical nature. I also consider myself a skeptical person. I want to be clear about that. But I think it's easy, again, from a human nature standpoint, you know, it's it's e it's too easy to paint with too broad a brush. Yeah. And this goes with anything. We're just having it, you know, we happen to be having it within the context of climate change right now. And that's, again, part of what the book is about, right? It's part of what my work with organizations is about. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. The reality is any decision we make on the climate change front, according to natural laws, is going to have impacts across the globe, right? Um, you're on the East Coast right now. You know, decisions that are made there are going to impact me in the Midwest, vice versa. And it might not happen immediately, you know, on the snap of, finger, of the fingers, but it it happens over time and we're all in this together collectively. So, you know, and, and again, going back to this notion of diversity is what creates resilience in nature. Diversity of thought is also part of what creates a rich society. So I am by no means um, suggesting that we should all move into this, you know, space on the continuum where climate change is real and we need to do something about it. The reality is I think rich conversations like this create opportunity for innovation. You know, these points of contention among humans create the space for us to innovate, whether it be socially or technically, you know, this is, this is what evolution looks like. We try it out. We see if it works, doesn't, we learn some things, we try again, works a little bit better. It's that iterative process. And I think we're at a point right now, again, where the science is suggesting we just need to iterate a little bit more intentionally in these next few years. I gotcha. 
I got you. Well, I appreciate you <clears throat> diving deep and willing to have the conversation and even answer the somewhat contentious question. I'm sure many people have had many arguments about that question. So I appreciate you diving into it with such a um, helpful spirit. For sure. Appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Well, let's go ahead and jump into dreams and goals. Now we've talked about the book. We talked a little bit about your work as a consultant and just some stuff you like doing. But what's your like vision for your book, your company, and your life? You know, I have moved away from being as goal-oriented as I used to be, being as vision-oriented as I used to be. And part of the reason that I moved away from that process, not that it still doesn't have any, you know, uh, place in my life, it certainly does, is because I've learned over the years that when I make a plan, and I stay committed to that plan. It often for me creates a sort of tunnel vision that makes me a little bit less receptive to the signs and signals I'm receiving to the world around me. Mm -hmm. So I'll answer your question in generalities. And if you want me to pin down to be a little bit more specific, please do. Certainly, you know, if the listeners have made it this far, they know that I'm passionate about climate change, right? Um, as a consultant, that's one of the demographics of organizations that we really like to work with. And I, I say we, it's not just me, uh, are companies that are innovating for addressing the climate crisis at scale, right? So these really innovative solutions, many of them are tech oriented, but not all, um, we're, we see ourselves as capacity builders. And so we want to help those innovators build capacity. That's one thing that I'm really passionate about. Uh, and so that work is ongoing, but it's also a direct parallel to the book and, you know, what I would consider the other half of my life's work, quote unquote, is building capacity within individuals. And to kind of circle back to perhaps where we started this conversation, it's really challenging to have these conversations without, you know, courage and the emotional vulnerability to be able to spend time in this space of discomfort and to be able to spend time in this space of the back and forth because the solutions from a climate perspective, it might be easy to say, well, if we just do X, Y, and Z, we'll be good. But the reality is in order to do X, Y, and Z, we're really having a conversation about behavior modification on the human level, not just individual, but also the collective. So these things are interrelated and we can't separate them. So that's the other half of my work, you know, working with the organizations to help them build capacity in order to solve the, the challenges at scale through innovation, but also working with individuals to help people like you and me build capacity within themselves to be able to move into whatever space in life they're feeling called to go. And when the going gets tough to see it through. And so that's really what the book is about. That's what my speaking is about. That's what, you know, podcast opportunities like this are about is I'm hesitant to use the, you know, kind of motivational, inspirational language, because I think that that is often fleeting. The reality is when you roll up your sleeves and you get your hands in the dirt, you're getting dirt underneath your fingernails. And it takes longer to get that dirt out from underneath your fingernails than it does to plant the tree or whatever you were doing in the dirt. 
And that's part of the process. And so to continue on and to recognize that that, that internal alignment is an ongoing iterative process and something that requires courage, requires curiosity, requires patience, is something that also really motivates me. So in turn, you ask me, you know, what do I want to do about my with my life? That's really what I want to do. I want to help build capacity within individuals, communities, and organizations to effectively address some of the things that are contributing to the deterioration of our collective quality of life. So it's a big scope. And there's a lot of different ways that I think I can engage in that process. But ultimately, all of my work is oriented around that single target. I love it. When you say build capacity, can you elaborate on that a little bit for me? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Build capacity in the sense of Just trying to think about how to answer that question without using hypotheticals. Are you speaking to like infrastructure or are you speaking to? If if I'm speaking about organizations, I'm largely speaking about infrastructure, but I'm also speaking about the people capacity of the organization, right? Gotcha. So there's a method to our madness in terms of the way that we work. Maybe that's how we can kind of make the conversation a little less sticky. With our work with organizations, <clears throat> It doesn't always unfold like this, but we have a bit of a one, two, three process. The first is focusing on organizational development, organizational infrastructure. For those of us that have experience in the working world, many of us probably know what it's like to be in an organization that's not fully optimized, right? And so the redundant tasks or the outdated tasks or the friction with colleagues, et cetera, et cetera, all contribute to they're all little nicks on that organizational capacity, right? Because if those things were more fully optimized, that organization would have more capacity to have a greater impact. So phase one is just organizational development, infrastructure, process optimization work. Phase two is employee well-being and engagement. Once we dial in the business processes, now we can start focusing on the people and we have more capacity and bandwidth. Maybe bandwidth is a better word in this context because you asked me about capacity. Bandwidth to talk about what employee well-being and engagement looks like. Because if we can build up the employees, uh, the people of that organization, if we can improve their health across all domains of well-being, then we can also improve their workplace engagement, right? Their devotion to the job, their commitment to the job, their excitement about the job, their performance at the job. We're again, building the capacity of the organization, the ability for that organization to have an even greater impact. And then step three, beyond employee well-being and engagement is social and environmental impact. So for the people out there, you know, one common understanding of this might be like corporate volunteering, right? If there are people that have experience in the corporate world, um, they might get a, a bank number of hours. They might have a set number of events every week or every year. Every organization does it differently to go engage in something volunteer oriented outside of work, theoretically something you're passionate about, or it's an opportunity to be of service to the community. So those three things for us make it a more holistic conversation about building capacity within organizations. And again, to go back to the whole climate change thing and just to use that as a contextual binder, there are many organizations out there that are innovating. And we see ourselves as a support agent to help them innovate 
at a greater scale, right? To increase their impact, their level of impact, their reach of impact, their scope of impact. From the individual, I look at it much more from an emotional resiliency standpoint. Again, for people like you and me to have an organic conversation like this around, well, let's like tease some of these threads in climate change. Um, you've asked me some questions that I've taken the opportunity to, you know, for lack of a better term, maybe educate on. But there are also things that I'm learning from this conversation about the, not only the questions you've asked, but the way that you've shown up. And I'm going to take those things with me as I move through my day and self-reflect, right? That's all I mean is taking it with me so that I can self-reflect. Because as I do that self-reflection process and I continue that self-discovery process, I'm building capacity or bandwidth within myself to show up more effectively in the next conversation, in my next interaction, right? On the next podcast. And <clears throat> again, two wings of the same bird, two sides of the same coin for individuals like you and me to recognize, you know what, I, I got a little bit more gas left in the tank and I can go devote that to X, Y, or Z, this thing that I'm passionate about. For me over the last couple of years, it's been, you know what, I can write this book that's been kind of noodling and rolling around in my head for a while. I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to see it through. And it started as a 90 day stretch goal and it turned into a two and a half year saga. Right. Yeah. Um, the thing that kept me going, one of the things that kept me going in the moments in the mornings where it was difficult to write was the fact that it's fundamentally an act of service. I'm not necessarily writing the book for me so much as the book itself is an act of service for others. It's an offering to the world. There's a capacity for me, I view it as a, you know, capacity nature <clears throat> and that emotional resilience is important. Um, you know, some people might be familiar with the term emotional intelligence. And I think resilience often has this connotation of, you know, I'm going to bend, but I won't break. That's not necessarily how I define resilience. Resilience is more, you know, the willingness to go with the flow and to get back up if we fall down and to experience more intimately what that process is like internally, because it's easy to go through our day and just also go through the motions, but it takes a lot of commitment and courage to go through our day and to make every moment as intentional as possible. So again, this is kind of the other half of my work. How do we build capacity within individuals to step up to the plate and swing the bat, knowing that they're going to strike out sometimes, but to go right back to the dugout and get right back in line and step back up to the plate and swing the bat again, because this is what we're here to do, right? We are a collective. And as a species, we are not only intimately connected with the natural world, but we're also intimately connected with one another because we're natural beings. And so developing that human capacity, that human agency to persevere, right? When the going gets tough, to demonstrate compassion when the moment calls for it, whether that's compassion with self or with others, to strive for understanding and mutuality so that we can find common ground to have the difficult conversations that are gonna be required to address the grand challenges. These are things that 
again, to me, they're fundamentals. They're the underbelly, they're the substrate, they're the soil of what it's going to be required to really effectively create positive change in the world. So that's what I'm passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That was a really good explanation of capacity and how it shows up with organizations and then how it shows up with people. <clears throat> Curious, what are the top one to two skills that you're developing right now that will help bring these this kind of big vision you have for the world into fruition? Not sure that you would call them skills. Not sure that I would call them skills. One is curiosity. To continue to stay curious about the process. And the reason that I say that is because it's, in my own experience of life, led me to uh, a lack of curiosity has led me down some dark paths. Right. Yeah. And often led me into a space where it's like, well, I think I know the answers. And so I'm just going to move ahead. And that can be really detrimental. Right. When we don't stay receptive to the world around me uh, or the world around us. So curiosity is one. And the other that I would say is is clarity, clarity and perception, being willing, being willing to do my best to see the world as it is and not what I'd like it to be. And the reason that I say that is because <clears throat> it's easy to put on the rose-colored lenses. And I don't necessarily mean that in like, let's just make everything, you know, soft, warm, and fuzzy, but rather to see things for what we want them to be. Interactions with other people and we perceive a certain intention, but they didn't come from that. They're not coming from that space. And so a week down the road or a month down the road, now all of a sudden there's this little point of contention because I perceived it differently than they did or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and, and clarity also from the standpoint of the way that it looks now will likely change. And I need to be willing to adapt and change my mindset and perception perception along the way. So again, Perhaps some listeners out there might not call them skills, but curiosity and clarity are two things that I think are integral to my own process in terms of staying receptive and effective. Gotcha. I could definitely see the both ways, it not being a skill, but I could definitely see it being a skill. Like curiosity can be a muscle that you exercise and, you know, especially the clear perception, not having the rose colored glasses on that's a skill of knowing how to deal with your ego and kind of get out your own way for sure. Well, awesome. What character trait do you most need to develop right now to kind of bring this into fruition? That's an interesting question. Cause I, I feel like I was just talking about it last night um, with a business partner. The last few years of my life, uh, grad school, writing the book, some other big challenges and changes along the way have required a lot of execution, logic mind. And I haven't been as receptive 
as I would like to be. And so one of the things that I'm trying to cultivate right now, maybe a different way to say it is a reconnect with is receptivity and the, the willingness to go with the flow, you know, to, to follow the breadcrumb trail through listening, as opposed to approach life through um, sheer force of will. So that's actually one thing that I'm working on right now. You know, putting the book together was a monumental, required a lot of diligence, you yeah. know, and now that the book has been released, we simply enter the next chapter, no pun intended, which is how do we share the message? Yeah. That's a different nature of work than it was to craft the message itself. So I'm excited to learn and experience what that process of reconnection is going to look like. There we go. All right. We got one last question for you. If there were one or two people that you can meet right now, and this could be a specific person or a type of person, and they'd really help you take that next step towards this big vision that you have, who would they be and how would they help you? Three people, three types of people, I'll say, that come to mind. The first, I would say, is someone who is spiritually cultivated and aligned. Someone who has realized um, the truth of self to the fullest extent possible in this lifetime. That's something that I'm really passionate about and a journey that I definitely still feel like I'm still on. Yeah. And so from a personal and spiritual development standpoint, that'd be the type of person. Um, from a tactical standpoint. Two types of people. I'm always looking to learn more about uh, climate change and the multidimensional nature of it, interrelatedness of it. And so, you know, there are, there are giants in the field who, um, we're fortunate enough to have access to in this age of technology and information, right. Or more access to where we can read the books and listen to their podcasts, etc. So that's another type of person. And the last type of person, you know, the, the older I get and the more I do this work, the more I realize that public policy is essential. We need to enact policy changes. And I've long since avoided that space uh, for a number of reasons, which we don't need to dive into. But politics was a big thing in my house growing up, and I think I kind of moved away from it. Gotcha. And that's another. And so to be with someone who has experience, you know, kind of firsthand experience, boots on the ground experience of what it looks like to be in the trenches of public policy. I think I have, I'd have a lot to learn from that person as well. So those are three types of people. That being said, 
I have something to learn from everyone, you know? And so the reality is anyone that I come across is someone that I'm excited to meet. There we go. Well, awesome. Ian, that's all we got for you, man. Is there anything else you want to chat about before we sign off? I think we covered the bases pretty well in the conversation. <laughs> um, the book is out. Find me, you know, on the internet, find me on social media. Uh, the handle is at revive you and I reach out, please connect. It's part of the reason why I do these because they lead to, you know, interesting conversations and connections elsewhere. Um, and also because I love consuming podcasts, right. And there's a lot of rich conversations that I've learned a lot from along the way. Uh, most importantly, going back to that conversation about capacity, we just encourage everyone out there to think about what does that look like today for them, you know, and to spend some time being intentional about that self-reflection process today and build that intentionality, flex that intentionality muscle because it's going to take all of us to address some of these grand challenges, not just climate change. Social justice is another one. Perhaps we need the part two to talk about that. Um, and I think it just makes the world a richer place. So hopefully this provided some value to the listeners and a little bit of motivation and inspiration, but also, you know, a bit of courage to dive deep and drop down into that next level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Love it. Well, we'll have to have that part two then. <laughs> yeah, I would appreciate it. Awesome. Well, if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Ian had to say, make sure to check him out. All the links to do so will be down in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. And we will see you guys on the next one. On that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.